The late 1980s were a terrible time to be a genre telefan in the UK. BBC One controller Michael Grade had almost killed Doctor Who, and his successor, Jonathan Powell, would successfully axe the show, largely due to his dislike of producer John Nathan Turner. Powell would also tell audiences that he didn't feel TV viewers wanted science fiction on TV. He reputedly refused to buy Star Trek The Next Generation for BBC One, condemning genre TV fur in the UK to the ghetto of cult programming for the next 15 years. So it's a massive surprise that not only did the BBC buy Quantum Leap, which became a top-rated show for them for its five-year run, but that they also tried out a new homegrown science fiction drama series aimed squarely at adults, Star Cops. Granted, both of these shows aired on BBC Two, not the more mainstream BBC One, but we took what we were given when we were given it. Now I know what you're thinking, and you're right. What the hell is Star Cops? Star Cops was developed in 1981 by Chris Butcher as a BBC radio series. Butcher had written three very well-received scripts for Tom Baker's Doctor Who, The Face of Evil, The Robots of Death and Image of the Fendal. He then took over as script editor on Blake 7, where he also wrote a number of that series' best episodes, including the grim series finale, Blake. Boucher then went off to work on more Earthbound series, mostly cop shows like Juliet Bravo, Shoestring and Bergerac. Oddly, the BBC didn't seem to have a problem with multiple cop shows being in production at the same time, but God forbid they should have more than one science fiction show on the go at once. Boucher decided to marry these two ideas together and do a cop show in space, but one that adhered to real science. Well, as far as possible, anyway. He wanted to make a hard science fiction series for adults, using real deduction, proper speculation into how forensic would develop in the future, as well as dealing with all the problems that came with living and working in space, without mucking about with all that hyperspace and artificial gravity shenanigans. Star Cops received a 10-episode order from the BBC, and Boucher got to work. The main cast, who would all be introduced piecemeal fashion over the duration of the series, were headed up by respected Shakespearean thesp David Calder as Nathan Spring. Calder has been in loads of things, like the James Bond movie The World Is Not Enough and one of the Mummy movies, and as a familiar face and voice on TV and radio. The rest of the cast were relative unknowns. Eric Ray Evans played David Thoreau, Trevor Cooper was Colin Davis, and Lyndon Newton was Pal Kenzie. Only Spring and Thoreau get proper introductions in the first episode, An Instinct for Murder, with Devis first appearing in the second episode, Conversations with the Dead, and Kenzie, after a cameo in episode one, being properly introduced in episode three, Intelligent Listening for Beginners. Star Cops was sadly besieged by problems from the very beginning. Controller Jonathan Powell asked Butcher to rewrite episode one from a two-parter to a standalone. Boucher was then told he couldn't work on both Bergerac and Star Cops and had to choose between the two. Almost from day one, Boucher disagreed with producer Evgenie Grindef on how the show should look, with the episodes directed by Christopher Baker looking like the standard overlit studio-based fur of traditional BBC drama of the time, versus the episodes directed by Graham Harper that were moodier and more atmospheric. 
Industrial action also hit the show, meaning the tenth episode of Murder on the Moon was never recorded, although a script was fully completed and rehearsals had begun. The final indignity, and nailing Starcop's coffin, was its time slot. BBC aired the show from Monday the 6th of July to Monday the 31st of August 1987, the middle of summer, and constantly changed the time. 8.30 in the evening was a silly time slot to begin with, but then moving it to 8.35 was even stupider. This was a thoroughly inconvenient slot for people who were channel surfing, as most shows start at 8.30, so they had probably settled on what it was they wanted to watch by 8.35. Finishing at 9.25 also meant missing out on other shows' start times. It's like, and bear with me here, the BBC wanted it to fail. I remember watching Star Cops when it originally went out, because, well, because of course I did. The first thing that struck me was the truly appalling theme song. I mean, you thought Star Trek Enterprise was bad, but where do you get a load of this?
and of itself, that's probably a pleasant enough little ditty, but it's wholly inappropriate for this show. The first episode, as noted, and what we're going to look at today, is An Instinct for Murder, written by Chris Butcher and directed by Christopher Baker. Set against this appalling song, there are some genuinely lovely model shots of an astronaut in space floating around a space station, whilst a man swims in what looks like a freezing cold lake. In both locations, two other men, divers on Earth and astronauts in space, attack the lone swimmer and astronaut and kill the both of them. It's an impressive opener that would have been improved immeasurably with a proper score. Nathan is not impressed that the investigation into the death is being handled by computers, whilst on the space station, the Coral Sea, Thoreau is performing the same task up there as Spring is on Earth. There's a lot of overlapped dialogue forcing the viewer to pay attention, and the investigations are well cut between each other. Spring and Thoreau are both concerned over the deaths, but the people in charge don't care. It's all about the money, accidental death, job done, let's move on. The setup is intriguing, and it's a really good melding of detective drama and science fiction. The technology of the future is well realised in that it's not that different to today. Well, the today of 1987, anyway. There's even a Siri-like computer called Box that Nathan talks to that makes reservations for him and checks the weather and so on and so forth. Nathan is coerced into applying for the job as head of the commander of the International Space Police Force, a.k.a. the Star Cops, a nickname from a tabloid news hack that's stuck. Nathan isn't terribly happy about this, and it certainly does feel like, from the show itself, that he's been shuffled off to somewhere that he can't do perhaps as much damage as he can down on Earth. Nathan gets the job, despite trying everything he can to bollocks up the interview, and the training sequences that follow are truncated but amusing, albeit mostly consisting of what looks like stock footage. The story then follows Nathan linking the two murders together, and follows his investigations and relationships as he learns how to deal with his new post. Star Cops was a noble attempt to do an adult science fiction show. The trappings are all sci-fi, but the drama is something the audience can relate to quite easily, a murder mystery. Amidst the story, characters are well-defined, and the first show benefits from not having to introduce all of the characters, instead just focusing on Nathan Spring and David Thoreau, and giving the culprits time to be explored as characters as well. Without a traditional opening credit sequence with clips of the actors, we don't know who the main characters are, so the guilty party is a genuine surprise. As far as we know, everyone who's been introduced in this episode could have been a series regular, so when the bad guy turns out to be someone who we've spent an awful lot of time with in this episode, especially as he's quite likeable, this is a genuine shock. Of course, this all shoots Nathan in the foot. His investigations in the space station and his solving of the murders are front-page news, and as such, he wins the job. A job he didn't want. There's a lot of political intrigue in the episode. Nathan has to deal with all nationalities, and he's not a politician, so he treads on a lot of toes, as evinced in this clip from the end of the episode. Meantime, Chief Superintendent Nathan Spring, the detective who broke the case, is being strongly tipped as the new commander of the Star Cops. Another unauthorised statement. You shouldn't have done so spectacularly well. After that, who the hell else were they going to offer the job to? I don't want that job. Well, you'll need a pretty solid reason for turning it down. Personal commitments. <laughs> You're a little young to retire, but if that's your preference... My preference is to keep the job I've got. The job you had. Well, you'll need a fairly solid reason for firing me. 
You know, it was Brian Lincoln who solved that drowning case. It was the wife. She paid to have her husband killed using borrowed cash. She then sold some antique watches of his to pay back the money she'd borrowed. Really? Covered her tracks pretty well, but not from Lincoln, who went on with the case despite my orders to you and yours to him. Listen, if you're thinking of firing Lincoln, Firing let me him? Good God, no. I promoted him. He's my new Nathan Spring. Which leaves me nowhere to go. At least, nowhere else to go. Computer management has an opening, I believe. But that's a bit of a backwater. Have you ever been in space, Gerard? No. It'll be my pleasure to invite you for a visit sometime. I'll try to make sure you get a reliable backpack. There's a rumor the Russians have already executed that girl. The one who serviced Henderson's backpack. Yeah. Of course, they're not too ready to admit it now. You ruined their publicity. The Americans aren't exactly overjoyed with you either. Well, it seems reasonable. Hard to tell them apart anyway. You don't believe that? Why not? Same ends, same means, same victims. What's the difference? The head of an international police force ought to be able to see the difference. Yes, he should, shouldn't he? Maybe they've chosen the wrong man for the job. An Instinct for Murder is a pretty entertaining opening episode. Calder has the same gravitas as Patrick Stewart and commands the screen admirably. Unlike a lot of TV science fiction, it's not overly po-faced, with no small measure of humour in the dialogue as the characters play the old movie quotes game. It's a slow-paced drama, but crucially it's not boring. The influence of 2001 is felt quite keenly. The future of 2027 which isn't that far away anymore, is well realised, as the show takes its cues from the subtler side of sci-fi. Clothes, people and cars are pretty much the same. It's just the everyday technology that has improved, much like life. If you think about it, we still move around the same way, wearing the same things we always wore, only we now do it with a computer in our pockets that can pretty much tell us anything we want to know at any time. Like a lot of BBC drama, this is character-based, and as such, some beats are disappointing. Action, what there is of it, is all off-screen, meaning that we never see Nathan beat off his attackers in the conclusion of the story. Everything is sedate, which I can see not appealing to a mass audience. The central themes are expressed through the main character, that technology, as good and useful as it is, cannot replace a man's gut instinct or his morality. Star Cops ultimately limped through its nine episodes with little fanfare. Reviews at the time were not kind, with even Butcher feeling that he made it a little too safe. It was too different for the armchair detective crowd, but not risky enough for the hardcore science fiction fanbase, and as such it fell through the cracks, appealing to neither audience. Largely forgotten, Star Cops was never repeated, and the BBC wouldn't attempt another science fiction series for seven years, with even those attempts, Bugs, Crime Traveller and a remake of Randall and Hopkirk Deceased, yielding mixed results. 
1991, however, the series was released on BBC VHS, three episodes to a tape, and a re-evaluation took place. Reviews were kinder this time, with people appreciating the acting and writing and what the series was attempting to do more than they did on original erring. Dreamwatch magazine writer Keith Topping gave the series a glowing review on the eve of its 10th anniversary in 1997, and both Terry Pratchett and Stephen Baxter picked it as one of the best science fiction TV shows ever made in a 1999 poll. Network Distribution gave the show a cleaned-up DVD release in 2004, and in 2006, BBC4 aired The Cult of Star Cops, a 30-minute retrospective on the series. It was here that noted critics like Kim Newman drew attention to the writing of the show and how the scripts were ill-serviced by the low budget. Butcher only wrote five of the ten scripts, and other writers wrote the other five. Philip Martin's This Case to be Open in a Million Years focused on the dumping of nuclear waste in space, something tackled by Jerry Anderson over ten years earlier on Space 1999. Other topics covered were the smuggling of embryos and the integration of many different nationalities, and how that affected relationships. The show isn't without its flaws. A lot of the characters are stereotyped by Boucher's own admission, and some of the terms used to describe the Chinese and the Italians are offensive to modern audiences. But the extrapolation of then modern-day technology into the future, and the handling of what it would actually be like to live on a space station, are all well realised. The actors quickly bored of doing zero-G stuff, though, and that was kind of phased out as the series went along. Star Cops is ultimately a noble failure. As related on The Cult of Star Cops, the difference in tone between the Harper episodes and the Baker episodes was noticeable by both audience and cast, who all preferred the dirty-down approach of Harper to the standard BBC drama approach of Baker. It is, however, a very well-written show, recognised as a proper science fiction drama by proper science fiction authors. The show clearly had the potential to be great, but sadly, it was not to be. The DVDs are now out of print and hard to get hold of at a reasonable price, and Star Cops isn't streaming anywhere. However, the episodes are all on YouTube, as is the Cult of Star Cops documentary, and I recommend it if you want more from your sci-fi than whiz-bang. Big Finish recognised the potential and picked up the licence for further shows as audio dramas, with David Calder, Trevor Cooper and Linda Newton all returning to their roles, although none were written by Butcher. Eric Ray Evans had sadly passed away in the interim. Star Cops, however, is well worth investigating. You belong, you belong, you belong, you belong to the Merry Marble. Anyone hear us? This is Trey Lawson. And I'm James Hickson. Anyone can hear this broadcast. We need your help. We've been kidnapped and imprisoned in a tomb by this creepy old undertaker named Mr. Gravely. And he's forcing us to review his collection of Marvel horror comics. Stuff like Tomb of Dracula. Werewolf by Night. Man-Thing. Ghost Rider. And so much more. Forcing us to record these reviews as a podcast called The Tomb of Ideas. If you can hear this, please contact our families. Call the authorities. Anyone. Tell them we can be found at... Now, now, boys, let's not give too much away. You can find James and Trey every other Wednesday at the Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel horror podcast, a proud member of the Cinepunks podcast group. See you there, Tomb Believers. Ha 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 ha!
shall we delve into the evil evil sack? I don't know what an evil sack is. What could evil? Is it like evil eBay or evil email? Evil. It sounds like something they'd have on Flash Garden, doesn't it? Anyway, uh, mail mailbox. There's quite a lot of mail because um, although I've been releasing these quite regular, there's been quite a gap in recording. So, our first email today, Palace of Glittering Delights, the Daleks, is from Kirk Groenfeld. Hi, Kirk. Hi, Andy. I swore you could read the phone book and make me want to buy it. I wasn't really interested in Sylvester McCoy's Doctor Who, but you've convinced me that it might be very entertaining. Now, if I can just find the audiobook of Remembrance of the Daleks, I might pick it up. On a serious level, your audio levels on the show are just a little low, and I have a hard time hearing everything over the road noise in the car during my commute to or from work, but you somehow get through enough that it makes me want to read it. Can you boost the overall levels of your show just a little more? Um, I don't know, to be honest. Um, I've got the gain on the microphone as high as it will go before it starts distorting. I've got the recording level on Audacity on 9, so I don't, I suppose I could bump it up to 10 and see what happens. But um, I actually think I sound quite loud in comparison to other shows I listen to. I don't know if there's a problem with the MP3 encoding. Uh, I don't know if you drive a tractor. That, that could possibly be what it is. Um, it, does anyone else have that same problem? Because, you know, I've never been accused of being quiet before. Thank you, Kirk. Our next email is from Jason Renner. Uh, who says, talks about tie-in novels. I have no idea why Two True Freaks didn't work for the past few months, but now it's working again. I have no control over that, Jason. Uh, nothing to do with me. You may want to drop a line to the people in charge of the website or, or whatever. There are some Kelvin-verse tie-in novels that were interesting. Parts of one got used by the writer in a classic Trek novel called The Face of the Unknown. Also, you said that the Kelvinverse novels would outshine the movies, and that's correct, as one of the planned novels was for everyone to be hunting after Spock Prime for the massive wealth of information he'd held. I'd have gone with that over Into Darkness any day of the week, as that sort of story would not be reheating a movie. More on the Kelvinverse, the 68 issues produced by IDW and the two Green Lantern miniseries are all pretty entertaining. Frankly, I think those comics are going to be any real reason anyone gives a crap about the Star Trek Kelvinverse, apart from the one Simon Pegg wrote at the last minute while watching original series reruns. When you asked who in the current trilogy of Star Wars films they could use as a main character, Poe Dameron has stepped up for that. He's had a number of series from Marvel Comics, and most of which have been very good, I have to say. Odd note on The Last Jedi, I can unite people that hate the film and love the film over the fact Ryan Johnson should have kept his big fat mouth shut online, which has to say a lot about a person when even the people that you like think that about you. I think an awful lot of professionals should probably keep their mouth shut online. But I, I honestly think Ryan did get to the point where perhaps he should have just had a pre-prepared statement where anyone who tweeted him, he should have just replied with, um, well, I'm really grateful Disney gave me the chance to make the movie I wanted to make. Um, if that didn't work for you, that's a shame. But there's another film coming along in two years that I hope will be more to your tastes. And I think that would have curtailed 95% of the online bickering if that would have just been his standard response to everything. But, you know, what do I know? This is Liz and Oswald. I always liked Doctor Who and the seventh Doctor was one of my favourites. The fourth being my favourite, of course, but Ace is my favourite and companion. I think I saw this one. I know I saw Silver Nemesis. 
For Doctor Who's silver anniversary, it was awesome that the Ace and Doc always work together. And I've got a YouTube channel under the name Liz Ann Oswalt, where I talk about many things, wrestling, comics, politics, trans stuff, whatever I feel like. The changes to the Doctor's character were mostly Sylvester's doing. He thought about how the character could be darkened up slightly and how he could build up on it. And I guess the writers went with it. It's possible the writing team thought it up, but I'm going more with Sylvester over J&T. I think Andrew Cartmel was something to do with that as well. I think the pair of them kind of liked the idea of taking Sylvester McCoy's character and making him not so much as a clown. But, you know, whoever it was, it was a good decision. I can almost see a seventh Doctor serial called Andy and the Palace of Glittering Delights. Alonzi, Liz Ann. Uh, I, I don't know if that'd go down well amongst the Doctor Who glitterati. To have an episode named after me, but who can say, you know. Uh, another email, Palace of Glittered Lights 114, Doctor Who Broadchurch and Grace Point. Hi Andy, hi Regan, because this is from Regan Jew. I am currently, uh, I am finally current on all of your podcasts and one-off appearances. Palace, Hey Kids, Fantastic Cast, Listen to the Prophets, Keep and Flying, The Overlook Dark Knight and the James Bond soundtrack retrospective. This one was really fun to listen to. You've turned me around on DS9. I no longer turn the channel when it comes on. I still watch knowing that there are good Klingon or Mirror Universe episodes to catch, although if it is a Bashir episode, I'd probably still turn it off. On a couple of episodes of Hey Kids and Palace, you referenced a show called Broadchurch. I have never seen it. There was an American version called Grace Point. I tried watching it when it first aired just because David Tennant was in it. I thought it was slow and gave up after three episodes. That's probably why I didn't bother watching the original UK Broadchurch. Uh, you only watching three episodes was probably explain why it got cancelled as quickly as it did, Regan. Uh, Tennant has said in an interview that by and large there wasn't so much of an acting challenge for him taking that role. It was that he's got four kids and needed them and wanted the money. Don't know whether he needed the money, probably wanted the money. Uh, I am a casual Doctor Who viewer. I'd heard that there was going to be a lady playing the part. Some people were complaining when it was announced. About a month ago I watched her first season of The Doctor so I could see what all the fuss was about. I don't have a favourite Doctor, so to me her portrayal was no different than anyone else who's played the part. Although her rainbow-themed outfit was a little distracting because it kept reminding me of Mark and Mindy. Jodie Whittaker's likeable, and I was curious to know what she did before. I did some Bing Foo, a technique similar to Andy's Google Foo, and came across Broad Touch. I thought Andy did recommend it, and it has two Doctors in it. I watched all three series and really enjoyed them. The first series is the best of the three. The second series is like watching the order part of a Law and Order show, and the third series was alright. The best part of the third series was seeing how the Olivia Coleman and David Tennant characters interacted with each other. They are true partners in the third series. It doesn't sound like there will be a fourth. No, Broadchurch was designed by all accounts to be a three-season thing, and that was it. And there were people wondering how he could spin it out after the first series, because the first series over here was a phenomenon. It really was one of those shows that people were watching live and talking about and and all of that stuff. And, and that didn't really happen so much with seasons two and three. People kind of think it went off the boil a bit. But I watched them all, like, binged back to back. And therefore, I enjoyed all of it. And I thought Jodie was truly brilliant in it. And I think she's great in everything I've ever seen her in. I don't know where the complaints about her acting are coming from. After viewing Broadchurch, I decided to give Grace Point another chance. The story is exactly the same, except the ending. The camera shots and pacing are the same. The original producer and David Tennant are there, but I still dislike it. I think it has to do with the acting. The UK cast is just really good. Which brings me to my question. Andy, will you do a Broadchurch episode for Palace of Glittering Delights? Thanks, Regan. Um, I, I honestly have not considered doing Broadchurch at all. It's not in my little book of notes where I jot down ideas, largely because 
I think that Broadchurch is one of those shows that would require me to watch all 30 episodes to be able to make a decent show about it. Because you'd want to be able to talk about where the show went after its initial blush of success. And Chibnall, Chris Chibnall, who wrote it, has said that the show wasn't so much about the death of Danny Latimer in the investigation, which is what every detective show would be about. The show was actually about the aftermath and how it affected the community, which was a very close-knit, small community where everybody knew everybody. So series two and three were ultimately where he was going with the show. And I kind of think I'd have to watch all of it to be able to do a show about it. And I don't really know if I want to devote that amount of time to an episode that would probably be no longer than 45 minutes to an hour. That would that would take a, a huge chunk of watching a note-taking time for a show that probably wouldn't yield that much in terms of results, if you know what I mean. But um, it is worth watching if you like some, some gritty drama. Tenant is brilliant in it. One of the lines, what is the point of you, Miller, has entered into the lexicon of the Leyland family. Uh, like you say, Olivia Coleman's brilliant in it. Jodie Whittaker's good in it. Lenny Henry's great in it. David Bradley. Everyone who's in Broadchurch is is really good and have all gone on to, to stellar careers or had stellar careers beforehand. Anyway, we'll knock it on the head, though, for this week. Nice short half an hour episode, though, for the people that uh, like such things. I'll be back next time with I Do Not Know What. And this is one of those instances where I've got a couple of things on the boil. And whichever one bubbles over first, that is probably the one that'll get recorded next. Uh, If you want to be like these lovely people who've emailed in, then feel free to do so. Uh, HeyKidComics at VerdianMedia.com, which is the email address uh, and uh, drop me a line let me know what you think thank you to everyone for emailing in and uh, we'll see you next time and remember everything's gonna be okay hopefully <laughs>